I am super glad that we are managed to finally do it because we talked with Anastasia for some time uh, to um, invite her and feature her work because we all super appreciate it. But also today, I was as we were preparing to do this uh, uh, broadcast, I was also thinking a lot about storytelling and Ukrainians who are doing storytelling and journalists like myself, especially on these days. Unfortunately, this morning we woke up to a lot of rocket attacks on our cities and our homes, including my own home city. And for the first time in my life, I find myself in a very weird situation because for almost 20 years since I've been doing journalism, um, telling the stories of my own people and uh, the places I come from was a very good way for me to uh, deal with a lot of complicated issues or with a lot of um, injustices uh, that I would face. But this is for the first time, some of the information that you have to share is you kind of need to filter it because you got to consider a lot of security risks and it kind of robs you an opportunity to tell the story in full because you have to think about your loved ones first and their security. But it doesn't mean that those stories disappear or they're not existing, especially for those parts of our families that are on occupied territories now. So this is where I think Anastasia is perfect to chat not only about journalism in times of war, but also storytelling, storytelling by young Ukrainians. Uh, Anastasia, hey, you're with us. Yes, yes. Sorry, I was just giving you guys the floor to properly introduce yourself. Can you hear me well? Yes, it's perfect. Great. So, uh, Anastasia, our really first... You can call me Nastya, by the way. That's fine. That's preferred, actually. Cool. So nice I've to, called you uh, something even even more unpreferable, which is the English yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can we can get into that whole discussion about my name later. It's actually quite interesting for English speaking people to hear usually. But anyway, go well, on. Well, this is this is a perfect then opportunity because our ground rule we never introduce our guests and we allow them uh, encourage them to introduce themselves the way they want it. I see. So please uh, tell us, especially I mean. Uh, a lot of people um, probably here already know uh, where we work, but please introduce <laughs> yourself, who you are, uh, what you do, where you come from, and yeah. uh, what your life has been since the genocide started. Yeah. Um, so, well, my name is Anastasia, or shortly Nastya. So that's what um, everyone in Ukraine or a Ukrainian Russian speaking space would call me. Um, so, yeah, I definitely uh, do not prefer Anastasia or Anastasia or whichever Western spin on that um, that people put. Um, I am a national reporter at the Kiev Independent, though for the last few months um, I've been, uh, I haven't been as active with my reporting because I'm still in university. I'm 21. I just turned 21 a few weeks ago, a week ago, I think. Um, and, um, yeah, so I've just been dealing with, you know, a lot of... Uh, obviously, you know, with the war and then also with work and then also with school. But I've been uh, I've been with KI for um, with the newsroom for, you know, nearly two years now, I think, if not over two years, because, of course, I, I, I'm not sure how pe- how many people are aware of that. But um, 
you know, we all started as the Kiev Post. We were part of the Kiev Post. And then there was this little scandal and uh, we were all fired for defending our editorial dependence. And we created the new, the, the Kiev Independent, a new media. So I've been with the team for a few years. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited to be here. I know Maxim and I have been trying to sort of plan this for a while, but something would always go wrong. But here we are. Yeah, Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. It's war, so always something always happens. But at the same time, it's been 19 days, but uh, it feels like we just talked yesterday about it since like basically no, it's the, one. The, the time flow right now is crazy completely. Um, yeah. I, it's like one yeah. long day. Exactly. That's a, exactly. I have a friend who posts on Instagram stories every day, like day 79 or day 80, and just kind of, you know, sums up what happened. And she's the only reason why I even know what day it is, because I, I don't keep track of it. But also, every time I go and see those Instagram stories, I'm like, fuck, no way. It's already been that long, you know, because, you know, when the war began, that was sort of my biggest fear that this is going to prolong and it's going to be something that I have to learn to live with. I, I hated that idea. I, th that was the last thing I wanted. And it was, you know, kind of it, it, like learning to live with it seemed to me like the most unjust thing or, or for people to expect of me and of other Ukrainians. But unfortunately, I mean, no matter how much I reject, you know, you reject it and no matter how much I don't want to, I'm, on a practical level you just do you, it's not something you control so yeah you soldier on especially if you're you know journalist and uh, this is something definitely part of the job and by the way i really wanted to ask you because i know we chatted uh, in private about it comparing our experiences because um you know i i was trying to remember and i remember it still vividly how um we were struggling to get the word out during the 2014, the, the first invasion, the Maidan revolution, and it was extra hard for Ukrainian journalists to be uh, in English language space, to be recognized. And um, I told you that, you know, I'm overjoyed to see that this time around it's different. And finally, Ukrainian yeah. voices like yourself get more yeah. um, exposure and more interest and your work is uh, more celebrated and amplified. Um, can you maybe share, as a, as a young journalist, how exactly the uh, experiences of you know Maidan and the years after Maidan shaped you as a journalist, and maybe even yeah. how you decided to become one? Yeah, um, that's very interesting. Well, <laughs> first of all, when, when Maidan happened, I was like 13 or something. I think I was like 12 or 13. I was tiny. Um, but um, my family was definitely like millions of other families. We, we were taking active part in it. You know, I have I, I still have photos of me like 20 year old sitting in her room in the middle of the night drawing posters that said, you know, fuck you, Putin or something. Um, it, it's brilliant. I'm so glad I still have these memories, um, you know, and I, I have memories of walking around 
you know, Krishatik and going to the Kiev City Council and my dad, like, lifting me up because I was so small. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm in general a tiny human <laughs> now as well. I'm very short. But, you know, when I was a kid, my dad would have to lift me up so I could put the poster, you know, on the Kiev City Council wall. Um, and, um, you know, and we would walk around with our family friends and, you know, do the whole thing. And I, I was there when uh, the first million, you know, showed up in Maidan. I remember walking as well with my dad and my mom uh, near the Kiev City Council and a bunch of Tetushkis showed up. So, I mean, I assume people know who those are, but basically just, you know, a bunch of whatever criminals who are paid to stir up shit. So they showed up and started banging on the Kiev City Council uh, like windows and I, my instinct because you know I'm, I'm curious and I want to see what's up my instinct was to run and see what's happening so my dad grabs me with both of his arms being like no like what are you doing are you nuts and he like pulls me out and like it, it, I have these vivid like these vivid memories and these experiences you know my mom was helping with the injured who were at the St. Michael's you know one of the big churches in Kiev um, where people would bring all of the injured from Maidan. My mom brought uh, medicine there and stuff. So definitely all of this was uh, was a very important, you know, part of my bringing. This was, this was something that was definitely a big part of my, you know, Ukrainian-ness and my experience. My uncle, he went to uh, Mohilanka, one of the top Ukrainian universities, you know, very pro-Ukrainian, very patriotic. They had tents set up, so I'd, I'd have to watch, you know, live streams at night you know, kind of trying to call him, you know, making sure he's even alive because he's there. So, yes, uh, that was a very lengthy way to say that it has definitely affected me and, and, and how I perceive Ukraine and you know, uh, I remember being like 13 and, and probably calling myself a nationalist, not even knowing all that is. I mean, and, you know, people laughing at me because obviously I had no idea what I was saying. Um, so um, I think you did at 13 and experiencing through all of that is still, uh, you know, you probably have more awareness than a lot of people who have been watching <laughs> yes. all of this from the outside. Exactly. Like, to me, that just meant loving and defending your country. And, and to be honest, it still means that to me in our circumstance but that that should probably have a whole separate twitter spaces thing on on yeah. that term specifically but um yeah so you know for me being being ukrainian always meant defending and it always meant you know fighting for something it didn't just mean enjoying the goodness of your country it meant that you know the, 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 there is always this kind of threat and you always have to nurture your ukrainianness and your freedom and you know your ability to to organize pro-LGBTQ raves in front of the president's office, which is, you know, something that's completely unthinkable, you know, in our neighboring countries, in, in many of them. So yeah. that definitely informed, you know, what what I am sort of growing into right now. Um, yeah. But I go ahead, Val. No, I was just going to say that it's about the values, right? Like the values that you grew up with that influence mm -hmm. a lot of what you do. And yeah, and I don't even remember, like my parents never you know, set me down and, and were like, okay, let's talk about, you know, 
having to like Ukraine or having to love your country. Like no one, this was this was a completely unexplained thing. It was just a, you know, a, a, a by default, you know, it, it you just see it, right? Because, you know, one day you can no longer go to school because, you know, the, the, there is smoke from the fires on Maidan so you can breathe properly. Or, you know, there are snipers on roofs. And I also went to school in Padil, which is like five minutes away from Maidan. So, you know, my lacing was shut down. So all of these experiences, you know, they may seem kind of not really that important. But now that I look back at it, I, I think I would be a completely different person if that didn't happen to me. You know, throughout the war, we've all had to call out different sort of harmful narratives, harmful uh perspectives that some people in the West and not just in the West, but in general outside of Ukraine have had about Ukraine. Um, and it has changed, you know, from one day to another, it's something else and something different. But I was wondering if there was one thing right now that you think is most important in the work that you do, what is it, what is it that you want to be able to tell people is wrong and what they think about Ukraine and what's happening right now? Well, first of all, is that well, actually, there's no first of all, there's there's so many things there, you know, there's like a dozen things that I think are all equally crucial for people to understand. And I try to mention it at any sort of public appearance I do ever. But of course, one of them is that, you know, uh, Ukrainians would never, ever give up their territory. And, uh, you know, anytime a friend of mine or a colleague from the West or a professor or whoever, you know, starts to have this discussion with me, I... I don't know whether to cry or to laugh or to yell at them because, I mean, like it, it doesn't make sense to me at all. And it's crazy to me that there are people who actually think that that's, you know, a, an option that can be even hypothetically considered. And, you know, and now we go as far as to have the world's most famous and most powerful newspaper actively advocating for that option. You know, I mean, so either we're all doing our job very wrong here from Ukraine or you know, or, or something is just utterly wrong with this, you know, with the world. It, it's probably the latter because, you know, um, you know, imagining what part of what part of America, you know, they would give up if they were under attack or what part of France, you know, people don't want to imagine that. They just want to impose kind of their least painful version of how this world would end in their eyes. So that's obviously one. And um and, and people have to understand that political decisions are not in Ukraine. So, you know, something that Zelensky does comes directly from what the people want. And for many people, that's, that you know, that, that they don't see it this way, especially, you know, the Russians, obviously, you know, because for them, that's a completely separate, you know, society and the government are completely separate. But for us, you know, when we say that Zelensky would never advocate for that option, we say that because we know that as a society as a whole, we would never let him, you know, because you know, mayhem would happen if, if he actually actively advocated for it. And in our eyes, society and people and the government are one. You know, we are one organism that's working to defeat a common enemy. We're not these, you know, two separate columns that are working, you know, simultaneously. That's not how it works. So that's definitely yeah. one. Of course, the other one would be, you know, 
you guys already know all of these things. I'm, I'm sure your audience does as well. But the, of course, the fact that this is this was never about NATO and NATO has nothing to do with this and NATO didn't provoke a thing. And, you know, the, the fact that Russia just can't stand free and democratic Ukraine and they just can't stand that, you know, We've got millions of Russian speakers who despise Russia and who would die for Ukraine, you know, and, and, and for them, it's it's more realistic and appropriate and normal, you know, to willing to give up their country rather than, you know, live under Russian rule. Like, that's how much we do not yeah. want that. And that's how well, much we're different. As a, as a Russian-speaking Ukrainian, I totally uh, I'm also Russian-speaking. Yay. Yes, absolutely. Me too. And I, <laughs> <laughs> and actually, uh, yeah, thank you for pointing out all of that. I think that despite that many people kind of uh, hear about it and we spend so many times debunking all of it, it's still yeah. out there. And if it's still out there, it means that uh, we should keep talking about it. And Clearly. I think I absolutely. And I find um, your uh, point very cool on this kind of colonial haze view of Ukraine from the West as well, when uh, when the many folks think Ukraine, then they not necessarily think democracy. And this is uh, uh, unfortunate, but also it's a, it's a consequence of Russian disinformation and Russian colonial disinformation that basically erased uh, so much knowledge, Western knowledge about Ukraine as an old democratic society with extremely uh, old democratic roots going back centuries. Uh, and I think that's uh, that's part of, that always surfaces up all the time, you know, that bas- basically Ukrainian society can teach a lot of e- fellow U- Europeans on democracy, not the vice versa. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, wanted to ask you one question, like that is very important for me. And, you know, um, I, I I saw how you shared uh, a lot of information and uh, pictures, heartbreaking pictures from Irping, where um, your home was. And when I was uh, looking at those and your reporting and what you were trying to uh, tell the world about the atrocities that were done in the Russian occupation there, one question I always was wondering, um, as a Ukrainian journalist these days, we are often uh, expected, especially by our Western colleagues, to uh, aspire to these weird Western standards of objectivity, uh, where the situation comes to reporting on something you really care about, your own home that was destroyed, your own people you know that died. How do you balance that out? And do you feel like those standards of so-called Western objectivity fair or even applicable to situations like that? How do you personally manage to report, stay on the story, but also uh, make sure that you're human in all of it and, you know, share your own uh, human emotions doing that? I mean, I, a lot of people actually ask me this, and um, but I'm I'm glad you did as well, because, you know, I do not think that I'm going to be a more objective journalist or doing my job as a journalist better if every time I quote statistics from the Ukrainian government, I'm also going to quote Putin himself or his government. I don't think that that's what objectivity means. I just mean that, you know, that's spreading lies and, you know, actually just taking up my word count in my article. Like, because, you know, some, of course, 
I'm all for, you know, nuanced analysis. I'm all for being open-minded, of course. You know, I'm not, I don't want to, I don't know. I, I don't like censorship. I'm, you know, I'm very liberal when it comes to information sharing and research, etc. But some things are just objectively wrong. And some things are just, you know, overwhelmingly seen as evil. And whatever the Russian government says are those things. So, you know, we were just... Kiai um, is uh, working on uh, making a podcast, which I'm going to be hosting with some of my girlfriends. And we were just having this discussion on uh, one of the episodes we were recording about how when the war started, our newsroom had to very quickly, you know, make a decision of what what are we going to call it? Are we going to call it a special military operation or are we going to call it a war? And I interviewed um, shortly Ola, our chief editor, asking her, you know, what what her thinking there was. And she said it exactly right. She said, your job as a journalist is to report on the on, on the truth, you know, so like actually open your eyes and see what's happening. You don't just copy paste someone's speeches or words. You know, if, if, if uh, he's saying that he's, you know, uh, saving people, but he's killing them, you have to report that he's killing them because that's what's objectively happening. So and, and that kind of applies to all of the reporting that Ukrainian journalists do, because, you know, it's not... It's, I don't think it's about I don't think it's about necessarily staying objective because I guess staying objective would mean like you know being balanced in that way where you have to devote you know 50% of the space to one side and 50% to the other. I would say that that's unfair and as a journalist I want to be a fair journalist you know I don't want to be a quote unquote balanced one. I want to be I, I want to provide fair reporting so people see the story in a fair way. And of course, you know, if people want to say that that's not that I'm, you know, that that goes against objectivity or something. And, you know, if they want to go and look at statistics from the Russian, you know, defense ministry just for balance, go ahead. They can do that. But it's not going to affect the truth of what's happening on the ground. Um, But I mean, of course, there is this whole, you know, other avenue of, of course, reporting on your home being destroyed is, you know, it's like, you know, in another interview, I said, it's like, imagine your partner being raped and killed right in front of you, you know, and, and that's exactly what's happening to our country. And that's also exactly what's happening to many people who have to actually do that literally, right? Because we've seen all of these yeah. stories yeah. from you Absolutely. Know, rape and stuff. And, and I, I, I always, I mean, of course, um, this is my opinion based on my work, but I, I always feel when you uh, really have a stake in the story, that's when your story comes out uh, in the best shape possible and the most uh, the most strongest writing or reporting comes out of that place. When you have a stake in the story, when you care, it doesn't mean that you're automatically pushing for some narrative, but it means that your reporting will be uh, honest and raw and powerful. And exactly. That's, uh, exactly what you're also doing. And um, I'm I mean, of course, there for is... that as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, of course. But, but I mean, we have to remember, though, that it's all it's also a quite dangerous situation because, you know, problems of, ob- and ob- of objectivity and bias, they're real problems in the media, you know, like not not just in Ukraine, but all over the world. You know, of course, there is there are also tendencies to, you know, push certain narratives and be supportive and not, you know, I've I've been asked, you know, would you report on like a corruption scandal that that would happen right now? Um, you know, to which I say, of course we would, but you know, 
that so it, it's it's kind of like this kind of tricky balance so when i'm saying that you know i i wasn't really affected because i'm covering my home that's also not true of course i i make these decisions and i think about it and i keep it in mind um so you know we should also be aware of the fact that you know yeah these decisions um, are difficult absolutely and i wanted to ask you as well um i'm sure everyone will agree with me but i think you personally have inspired probably a lot of people younger people older people with the way that you you and personally and in general team independent have been covering the war in ukraine and but i wanted to ask you actually um a little bit about maybe the people that have inspired you or have been inspiring you throughout this time maybe people who have been if you feel comfortable sharing that people who have been keeping you going and and sort of i guess like yeah inspiring figures for you that's a that's an excellent question um i mean i guess for me um something that pushes me is uh is thinking that well f- first of all okay let's let's backtrack a little bit and if i speak too much you guys stop me please but um i think for for many of us this was you know this doing this doing whatever it is that we're doing you know like working to help ukraine right now or reporting or whatever this was never a consideration of you know whether i should or shouldn't do it like i i, I never had another option you know it, it, it's it's just a survival instinct right because you know your country's under attack you 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 immediately think of what is it that you do best and you just do that to the maximum of your ability and so i don't i don't see us as heroes you know i don't i don't all of the recognition we're getting is situational i mean it there are thousands of young girls like myself you know all over the world in iraq syria palestine afghanistan all over the world you know doing much more dangerous things and doing you know greater things more courageous things um so i think of them very often you know i think of my friends in the east i think of my friends all over the world who live through conflict zones um and that kind of feeling of solidarity um that's you know almost unspoken um kind of keeps me going and uh inspires me and pushes me right because i see that you know they've they've had to do this for so long and they're not stopping and i've and i've been through this for you know like three months so how can i But at the same time, it's not like there is one specific thing that inspires me. I mean, it, it, as I said, it's survival instinct. And it's also, you know, I love my job. There, There is nothing else I can imagine myself doing. You know, I, I identify myself as a writer. Actually, that's problematic, but that's another <laughs> that's another conversation to have, too. Um, but, you know, I... Uh, I, I I love my I love my job more than anything, you know, maybe other than Ukraine. Um, so I can't imagine doing anything else for a different reason right now. Part of the reason I love Ukraine and Ukrainians so much because even very young Ukrainians are extremely exceptionally brilliant. Yes. Oh yeah. And do so much cool stuff. And as I as I often joke, you might be twenty one, but twenty one uh, or you know thirty. In Ukrainian years, it's like 20 plus in I mean, it's three revolutions, a war, an annexation, you know, 
of course, we have so many incredible young Ukrainians, um, especially in the media sphere. I mean, it's it's incredible. Like just going into the, you know, the Ukrainian civil society, just tipping into that on social media, you're going to see so much talent, so yeah. many amazing artists, journalists, people pushing very important narratives, you know, writing about history, writing about culture, all of them, you know, bachelor students all of them my peers doing these amazing things so yes i i'm very uh, very proud of that if if any young ukrainians and i i see a lot of young ukrainians as well listening if anyone listening um one thing that i learned the struggling with imposter syndrome for many years that you definitely shouldn't have that and just like say fuck it to it every time you feel it (laughs) because we outperform for a reason because we um, have to, uh, you know, do better. We're expected to do better, and we are there. And we having these platforms for a reason, not by accident. So please, just fuck it. It's it's not a real thing. We shouldn't be uh, <laughs> succumbing to it. Yeah, this is why, unfortunately, I sometimes text Maxim. Uh, unfortunately, every day, probably uh, on a similar topic, and you repeat this all the time, and I probably should stop doing it. But anyway, we'll record this and play it as a voice note from now on. Yes, um, <laughs> in the mornings. <laughs> we actually, uh, Nastya, have a question for you from um, our one of our patrons on Patreon, um, okay. Ashley. And she wants to know, what does the idea of rebuilding Ukraine mean for you? I think, I think first of all, um, that means, um, well, first of all, it means taking all of the money that we can from Russia to do it. Um, that would be very enjoyable to see. That's the only way I see this go. Um, but on a more, more serious note, I think what I keep on going back to in my mind, uh, thanks to my amazing friends who, who work in, um, you know, the sphere of cultural heritage preservation is, um, I think we have to do more work, more work than we've ever done before um, with our national identity and with our culture and with, you know, which means literature, cinema, our museums, um, because all of this is extremely important. And we now have so many young Ukrainians who are more motivated than ever before to interact with that and to embrace it and to learn it, you know, and to... You know, the people want to listen to Ukrainian music more than ever before. They want to speak Ukrainian. They want to wear vishvankas. And of course, this is all, you know, again, kind of like a defensive survival instinct. But we have to capitalize on that and actually turn that into policy. And I mean, in the in, in the in the best way, not in like hating another's way. I mean, turning that into, you know. Um, investing into good quality Ukrainian cinema so that we can use that for cultural diplomacy abroad. Because this is the, we have this unique time when everyone, you know, as my colleague Ilya Panamarenka says, Ukraine is the most popular country on earth right now. I love when he says that because it's very true. So we have to kind of, you know, make the best of, of, of this terrible situation we're in to when we win to um, kind of channel all of that love around the world that we have for a country, but also internal love into um, interacting more with our culture, because that's that's the part that um, 
Russia is also very aggressively and very actively attacking. And so that's the part that many in the West don't see or, or don't perceive as, as important, you know. I mean, we, we talk about, you know, tanks and drones and uh, night goggles, but we should also talk about preserving museum collections because that's equally important. That's what makes Ukraine Ukraine. Um, and that's also, you know, something that Russia has been trying to um, steal from us for centuries. So I think uh, rebuild, rebuilding Ukraine is going to just be that. It's going to be capitalizing on the love that we, we, we suddenly have for a country um, to interact more with our culture. It's very important. Yeah. I, I probably I'll say very millennial thing of me, but uh, uh, I would also add to this rebuilding, decolonizing ourselves and uh, our views of our own history and maybe spending time more to figure out what was what kind of lies we've been told by Russian colonial rules for yes. centuries uh, rediscovering our voices that were erased our uh, writers our artists reclaiming the arts and culture that was stolen and appropriated as Russian And uh, maybe also one thing I was uh, thinking today is trying to purge ourselves from hate because part of the reason I really hate Russia these days is because I'm filled, it filled me with so much hate I've never experienced before. And it actually, I'm disgusted because of it. And part of my rebuilding strategy is after this genocide is over, is to purge that hate and you know uh russia can have it and uh, i just don't want to have it in our lives and i feel like ukrainians feel the same thank you Nasya, so much for joining us uh this is something this is something we tell everyone that ukrainian spaces are for ukrainians to claim so at any point, if you want to stop by and talk about something you want to talk and amplify things you want to amplify, this is your space to claim um, as Thank you. with uh, other Ukrainians. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for yep. coming and talking to us. It's I, I love meeting people I see uh, online on Instagram and Twitter via spaces and talking to everyone. So this has been really great. Thank you, guys. Yeah. And uh, for everyone else, uh, yeah, guys, uh, this session is recorded and it's going to be uploaded as a podcast on Apple and Spotify. It's uh, called Ukrainian Spaces Together, so you can check it there. But also not only subscribe, please, but uh, rate and comment. And don't forget about that this is 100% independent and volunteer and now listener uh, supported show. So please check out our Ukrainian Spaces uh, Patreon space and become our sponsor. As I uh, told, told many of you some days ago, if you feel very frustrated with some stupid bullshit that Western media peddled about Ukraine, you can channel that frustration by donating, I don't know, $5 to um, our show. And uh, um, yeah, we will be really happy to amplify more Ukrainian uh, voices and decolonize more Ukrainian conversations. I think that's it from me for today, uh, except one thing. Slava yes. Ukraine. <laughs> I was going to remind you. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>